Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, welcome back. Okay, here's that researcher, Adam Shirk, talking about why he wants to see nutritional information on booze bottles. I think it would be fair and reasonable to request that alcohol... Um, alcohol packaging have to operate under all the same regulations as virtually all other food and beverages in Canada. Somehow alcohol has been exempted from this historically for decades. And as a drinker myself, I guess, like I would say, it just makes no sense. Alcohol should be included in other beverage categories like water, like soda that has uh, this, that type of labeling. Okay, which leads to our hot question of the day. Would you like to see the number of calories listed on your beer, wine, or mixed drink containers? Would you say yes, knowledge is power, or no, ignorance is bliss? At CKNW on Twitter. That's where you'll find the hot question today. At CKNW on Twitter. Phone me on the buzz line, too. 604-331-BUZZ. 604-331-2899. Okay, welcome back. Mike Smith in for Civi Sarah today. Let's take a look at the uh, numbers just out from Statistics Canada on legal marijuana sales across the country. British Columbia, way behind here. This is kind of surprising. This is the land of BC Bud, right? We're supposed to be like ground zero for marijuana. But take a look at these numbers in the approximately nine months since cannabis has been illegal across Canada, British Columbia, in legal marijuana sales, $19.5 million. That's it. Less than $20 million, which is nothing. You compare that to other provinces. Right next door in Alberta, where they have a less population than us, $123 million. Ontario, and by the way, Ontario has done a terrible job of rolling out. They got very, very few uh, stores opened up. 121 million. Quebec, 119 million. The only province in Canada that has sold less legal weed than BC is Prince Edward Island, the smallest province in the country. Teeny tiny little PEI. 10.7 million still. It's <laughs> pretty, you know, they're punching above their weight there. What is up with that? Why is the province that's legendary for BC Bud at the bottom of the ladder here when it comes to legal sales. Let's check in with Kirk Tusaw. He's a lawyer with the Tusaw Law Corporation, specializes in cannabis issues. Kirk, thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike, anytime. Appreciate the opportunity. What do these numbers say to you? Well, I mean, I think that they say a couple of things. The first is we don't have enough stores here in British Columbia. I mean, I, I think that's a big problem. Uh, last count, we were at about 50 stores, whereas you look over at Alberta, they're pushing 300 stores with wow. several hundred more in the pipeline. 
So that's obviously when you have, you know, very few points of sale for people to go and buy a product. Yes, we have online. People are not uh, really accepting that in the legal industry. But if you don't have a lot of places for people to go buy a cannabis, well, you're not going to sell a lot of cannabis. So okay. that, that to me is the biggest driver. What about the supply? Have there been any kind of supply issues? Well, I mean, I think there's adequate supply on the market. I, I think what you do see, however, is that because we rolled out and have not yet rolled out the other product categories, the drinks, the vape pens, the edibles, the topical products, all of the things that are coming after this October 17 and sort of legalization 2.0, um, here in British Columbia, those products have been available in a very sophisticated way in stores, on the shelves, in the legacy market or the illicit market uh, for a long time. And so, you know, again, when you have stores selling um, a wider variety of products to people that want to buy those products, and those products comprise, you know, anywhere from 20 to 40 percent of the market, um, you're going to have issues. Yeah. What do you call it? The legacy market? What's, legacy, what's, well, it's it, it, that's sort don't, of don't you mean don't you mean the illegal market? Well, it, it's certainly <laughs> illegal, but it, but at the same time, this is the industry, this is the market that sort of laid the foundation for where we are today. And I think, okay. you know, simply sort of shrugging it off as the illegal market doesn't pay it the kind well, of respect it that, it, that it really deserves. Okay, well, it's you know, let's let's face facts, right? I mean, I think probably. It sounds like most people are still buying from the black market or the illegal market or the legacy market, as you call it. That's pretty obvious, isn't it? That's where most people, I guess, are buying their weed, not legal. Absolutely the case, not just in British Columbia, but across the country. And, and I think everybody anticipated that, right? I mean, the transition from where you were getting your cannabis a, a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, to where you're going to get it five years from now is going to take a while. And, and, you know, nobody thought it was going to be like flipping a switch. Um, yeah, I'm yeah. disappointed as a resident of British Columbia, as somebody who really loves the vibrant industry in this country, that we haven't done more to facilitate uh, people transitioning from that legacy market into the legal market. And the provincial government and municipal governments uh, could, could be doing more to help that process, which would then generate, um, you know, more money into the legal economy. What what about the quality of the legal product, like the stuff you can buy in the government store on the government websites or the legally licensed stores? Is is the quality good? I mean, I've heard I've heard some. I've gotten a few emails from people who told me that they bought from the government store and they got like, you know, it was like ditch weed. You know, they didn't like it. They're going back to their dealer. Yeah, I think that there's certainly been bumps in the road of bringing product quality up to the standards that at least connoisseurs or people that are familiar with cannabis uh, in this province have grown accustomed to. Um, we're not there yet, uh, but there is a, a lot of very fine product offerings in the legal market, more to come. Uh, very excited to see what's coming. And, you know, we got to remember there's a couple hundred different producers out there. Um, some of the products aren't even on the shelves in British Columbia uh, because those producers are relatively small and, and can't supply multiple provinces. Okay, I'm speaking to Kirk Tusaw, Tusaw Law Corporation. He's a, he's a lawyer who specializes in the cannabis industry. What about the price of the legal product, uh, Kirk? Is the price too high? Maybe that's the explanation. I think consumers are always going to feel like prices are too high, and, and I do mm -hmm. think they're beginning to trend downward. Um, you know, I've traveled, uh, I've been privileged to travel in a lot of places in the world and bought cannabis in a lot of legal and illegal jurisdictions. I don't think the prices are 
are completely out of whack uh, with anywhere else you go to buy cannabis. I, I think they're probably slightly but not massively elevated from the legacy market or dispensaries that were operating, say, two, three years ago. Um, but, you know, part of that is a function of competition. Again, you know, we have a limited number of legal stores. We have a limited number of legal producers. We have not been able to get uh, craft small producers onto the market, and BC could uh-huh. assist that tremendously by allowing farm gate sales like we do at vineyards and breweries where you can sell direct to the public at the at the, at the farm where you're uh-huh. growing the cannabis. I mean, yeah. I think consumers would would love to have that option. I love going to my local vineyards and my local breweries or cideries, and I'd love to be able to uh, to operate a, a local farm here in the Cowichan Valley and have people come in and show them the plants that they're that they're about to sample and try and buy and take wow. away and, and enjoy at home. So, I mean, there are steps that we can take to promote uh, the growth of the legal market and the eventual transition away from the legacy market. Okay, your your point there about the craft cannabis market like small independent growers like growing a like a boutique product that's an interesting one to me because i remember a year ago interviewing mike farnworth the solicitor general and that's one of the things he 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 was real excited about he was like you know this is british columbia this is like the land of bc bud so this is what we want we have seen explosive growth in like craft beer it's been nothing but a huge success story we want to replicate that replicate it with marijuana we want small independent uh growers not these big giant corporations they have their place too but small independent operations how come that hasn't happened well, I think it's there's two primary factors, maybe three. Number one is uh, the province hasn't facilitated it with regulatory change, allowing, for example, sales direct to the public. So in other words, if you're a small grower, you've got to sell to the wholesaler at a discounted price point. Well, the second part of the problem is that it's still very expensive to start a small craft grow in Health Canada at the federal level hasn't facilitated making that much easier. And the third big factor is municipalities. Uh, we have municipalities that are still operating under bylaws that were drawn up during Prohibition. Uh, my own region, the Couch Valley Regional District, has been you know, supposedly studying the issue of retail sales, haven't issued any store licenses in, in almost a year now, haven't changed their bylaw. Still, uh, the growing bylaw references medical cannabis only, not non-medical cannabis. I mean, we're, we're in some ways living in a regulatory past in a lot of jurisdictions across this province. And I think what it's going to take is, you know, municipalities coming together with industry experts, coming together with uh, local community advocates, coming together with the province to say, look, we're losing ground here. This, this yeah. could be a flagship industry for this province, generate jobs, uh, generate uh, economic activity, uh, and we're, and we're losing ground. I mean, Alberta is probably the cannabis capital of Canada and, when I was a criminal defense lawyer, I used to tell my clients, well, whatever you do, don't go to Alberta uh, because the, because you're going to get punished so harshly. Wow. Uh, now now the opposite is true, Mike, and it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, I think we're losing a big opportunity here, and I, I really wish um, that we would sort of get our act together and start moving in the right direction. Kirk, while I've got you, let me ask you about a story that's uh, leading a lot of newscasts around uh, the country in North America today, and that's this uh, kind of a bombshell report out from the U.S. Surgeon General uh, calling marijuana a dangerous drug that is addictive, uh, warning about teenagers using it, pregnant women using it, the impact on the developing brain, 
especially in adolescence, uh, the dangers of addiction. Your thoughts on that? Uh, I mean, Mike, you made me sort of look at my watch and check my calendar, make sure we're not living in you know the mid nineteen eighties when Ronald Reagan was president and Nancy Reagan was saying just say no, or or even the twenties and thirties when Reefer Madness was sweeping across the U.S. Well, you don't but, you don't believe any of that? Uh, look, like anything, any human activity, uh, using cannabis comes with some risks. The reality is those risks are relatively minor. Uh, they are exceedingly less uh, so than alcohol, which we glorify and promote and is part of everyone's social fabric in the United States. And I think there's a lot of hypocrisy out there uh, when the Surgeon General's uh, really just trying to scare people away from cannabis, when in reality, what we should be doing is saying cannabis is a safer choice for recreational uh, activity than alcohol, and, and people should be making the transition as quickly as possible away right. from alcohol and towards cannabis. Thanks for coming on. It's been my pleasure, Mike. Anytime. Okay, okay, I appreciate it. That is Kirk Tusaw. He is a lawyer with Tusaw Law Corporation. He specializes in the cannabis industry. Let's talk about renovating your home now. And have you ever heard, you ever get kind of cold feet about doing a big reno on a, on a home? It can be so expensive. But then you think, well, wait a second. It adds to the value of my home, right? So if I put in like a new kitchen or bathroom or something, and then I turn around and sell the home later, I can get more for it if it's newer, right? If I've done really nice upgrades on the home. Check this out. There's a real estate company south of the border, Open Door. They've just launched a new home improvement value calculator. Now, what this does is it estimates the increase in the value of your home from certain home renovation projects and it says some of the ones that really add value to a home uh, increasing the interior living space of a home is big adding another bedroom that adds to the value of a home big time hardwood flooring they found adds to the value of a home some home renovation projects and upgrades not as good including carpeting well i guess a lot of people don't really like carpeting as a floor cover also going cheapo on cabinets and kitchen counters let's talk about all that and also how to protect yourself if you're doing a home reno my guests are larry clay he's the founder of clay construction they work all across uh, metro vancouver he's also the former president of the home builders association of vancouver hi larry hi there mike thank you for inviting us down to uh, your studio you bet, Larry. Thanks for coming in. Also, Amber Welton is here. She works for Clay Construction. Hi, Amber. Hi, Mike. Guys, thanks for coming in. Larry, let me go to you first. What do you think about these uh, this survey here about what, what kind of projects add the most value to your home? In your experience, what would you say? Well, I would say, first of all, looking at the numbers, they seem quite low compared to what we would be spending up here. But this yeah. really is an area of expertise for Amber that I would like her to speak on. So she, I'm going to pass it over to Amber. Okay, for Amber, now. what do you think? Yeah, thanks, Larry. You know, I I agree with uh, with a lot of what was said in that article. I mean, some of it I think is certainly possibly geared towards the American market. But, you know, it it also depends on what you're looking to do with your home. So, for instance, if you're looking to renovate a home that you plan to live in for a long, long time, then certainly square footage is is the number one thing that you want to add. Bedrooms, living space, you know, space for you, you know, to live with your family, of course. But if you're looking to sell, then really at the end of the day, if you want to get on the market right now, you're competing with your neighbors, so you want to know what other people are doing in your area, what other 
what buyers are looking at, what they're seeing when they go out and look at properties that are like yours and make sure that you're competing to get the top value. Right. I would think like adding another bedroom would be huge, right? For like a a sale value. I mean, imagine looking at a place that's like, well, it's two bedrooms or it's three bedrooms. You know, if you're able to put on a listing, you got four bedrooms or something. I mean, that obviously is very attractive. It is. Yeah, Yeah. it is for sure. And if you don't have the ability to do that, then that's a different scenario. But of course, adding on an addition is a very expensive renovation. Oh, yeah. Super expensive. What about something more cost effective, like a new bathroom or something like that? I mean, that's attractive, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. You know, it just depends. Again, if you're in a if you're in an area where all of your homes are sort of the same and everybody's kind of renovated to the same level and yeah. people are looking at uh, other houses on your street and you're kind of all in the same ballpark, then it it could be that you having that really beautiful kitchen or really beautiful bathroom is going to be that one thing that they say, yeah, but do you remember that blue house? They'd already done the kitchen and we wouldn't have to do it. Or they had that yeah. beautiful ensuite. That really grabs right. people's feeling. It's the look and feel they get when they walk into your home and they feel, oh yeah, this is the one that I can see myself living in. One of the things that jumped out at me, Amber, here was the finding that carpeting in particular, not a very desirable floor covering. I mean, is that your experience too? I mean, everybody has heard the one about, you know, you go to look at a place and there's like shag carpeting or ugly carpeting. Oh, don't worry. We can rip that up and maybe there'll be some nice hardwood underneath. Yeah. Like, is that true? Like, do people not like carpeting? You know, I would say it's 50-50. Like even myself, I'm considering renovation right now. And uh, I personally want to put hardwood in our bedroom and my husband wants to put carpet. It's just... And we're uh, we're still in negotiations. I think people are, uh, you know, right down the middle on that. I will say though that I don't necessarily want to buy someone else's carpet. Yeah, yeah, right. You know what right. I mean? So it's, it's one <laughs> yeah. thing to put in the carpet for me to live in, but unless I'm buying a house and I know it's brand new carpet, I'm just thinking of all the stuff that's been on that carpet. And yeah, I want to rip it out. Okay, Larry, let me go to you. Now you've been in the home renovation business for a long time, and one of the things that I think you guys do well there over at the Vancouver Home Builders is putting out the word that if you are going to hire someone to do some work in your home, you got to protect yourself and you got to make sure that you've hired a good contractor and that you've got the paperwork done, right? So you're not going to get burned. What would you say would be like sort of your top few pieces of advice there? Well, uh, I met a couple just a few months ago and they were going through this exact process and uh, they were very anxious about the build. They had only they had only applied for a permit, and they're very anxious. So I asked them, "Well, why don't you send me the the budget so I can give you some advice?" And they said, "Well, we don't have a budget." Well, I said, oh. why, don't, "Why don't you send me the specifications so I can see what you agreed on and see if this seems reasonable?" They said, yeah. "Well, we haven't even talked about what we agree on, and yet this gentleman had given them initially a ballpark price of eighty which jumped to 100 for no real reasons for the increase. And lastly, it ended up at 120, and there was no oh. reasons why it ended up at 120. So they're starting to feel very anxious about the budget and where it might end up. So I right. said, well, what about your contract? Can I look at your contract and see if it seems one-sided? They said, well, we don't have a contract either. And I said, okay, you know, there's so many red flags here. I need to meet with you. And so I talked to them about what they should be seeing from a contractor who's professional. You want a budget. You want to agree on specifications. 
You want to have a contract. You want to see a sign of a written warranty, insurance, permits. These are all very important that any quality contractor is going to be showing you. So when you're comparing contractors, don't go by just a reference or right. pretty pictures on a website. You really need to be comparing how are they going to com- how are they going to communicate with you? What does the budget look like? How are they going to stay on top of the change orders in the budget so you know that you can be on time on budget? As we continue talking about home renovation, which home rental projects increase the value of your home the most? Also, tips for protecting yourself as a consumer if you're hiring a contractor. If you've ever had an ex- a bad experience on it with, with a contractor, phone me and tell me what happened. 604 280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898. Star 9898. Toll free in your cell. My guests are Larry Clay and Amber Welton from Clay Construction. Pat in Vancouver on the open line. Hi. Hi there. I live in a condominium in Yaletown. So increasing the square footage or adding bedrooms out of the question. But we want to completely gut the kitchen and master bathroom. Um, and make it really, really, really nice, great appliances and everything. Are we ever going to get our money out of that? Is that is that something that is going to work out as an investment? And second, are there certain things that we should look for as condominium renovators that you might not think of uh, as a home renovator, like a house renovator? Okay. Yeah, that's a really great question. So my first question back to you then, Pat, is, how how old is your condo, and have your neighbors done lots of renovations? Uh, the condo was built in 1999, and yes, a lot of our neighbors have done a lot of renovations. Yeah, so it sounds like you're sort of right in that wheelhouse for, for an upgrade. I would say definitely a kitchen renovation would be a great investment. And it's likely, again, if there's other condos in your vi- building that are... Um, up for sale and they're going into you know 203 and he's got this you know lovely big beautiful new kitchen and then they're walking into yours and it's in an original condition that's an immediate um yeah that that's definitely the way to uh to do it i will say the important thing about condo renovations is when you're looking at a kitchen condo because you're looking at really limited space you want to be putting things in there that really maximize the limited space that you have so those are uh you know little drawers for spices making sure that there's no big um uh sort of empty cabinets with no function everything's got to be really functional and um and useful so that people walk in they go oh yeah this is this is a a great space for such a small area Pat, thanks very much for the call do you find amber that in your experience with uh projects and condos are are there any sometimes restrictions on what a condo owner can do in terms of modifying a suite yeah, definitely. There are um, a lot of uh, concrete buildings. We're not going to be able to necessarily put, for instance, a ton of new pot lights in. We would have to actually drop the ceiling to do that. You're not going to be able to take out a lot of walls. You'd have to um, uh, get an engineer in to make sure that right. if you take the wall out, you're not going to have the floor above you caving in. So it's very, very important to get a building permit when you're uh, renovating right. a condo for the integrity of the whole building. Oh, speaking of that, Larry, building permits. I mean, is that something that is a risk for a homeowner? Let's say you hire someone to do some work in your home and the contractor says, oh, you don't need a building permit. We don't need to tell tell the city we're, we're doing this work. I mean, is that a, is that a red flag for you too? 
Yeah, there's an underground economy where there's lots of guys who are doing work without a permit. The problem yeah. for the homeowner is going to be when you turn around to sell the home and the realtor has to acknowledge, the homeowner has to acknowledge the work that's done, they have to disclose this, that right. could hurt the resale value. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, I've heard I've heard stories like that for sure. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. 604-280-9898. Star 9898, toll-free on your cell. Hi, Ruth in North Vancouver. Hi. Hello. Hi there. Go ahead, Ruth. Uh, well, we live in a, a large condo, and we're old people. Um, my husband would like a walk-in, sh- a walk-in bathtub in the, the ensuite bathroom. Now, <laughs> I don't imagine this adds to the value of the place, does it? Amber. Well, you know, it's it doesn't necessarily take away from it. I think it depends on how long you plan to be in the house, Ruth. I mean, you don't want to be doing a renovation thinking, well, this needs to suit the next buyer, when really, if it's the plan for you and your husband to age in place, to stay in your home for as long as possible, I think that those things are, are really valuable. We're putting in a lot of low threshold um, showers, and you can also do things like you... Um, reinforce the backing on the wall within a shower so that you can put up grab bars, things like that, so that people are able to, um, you know, to really use that for as long as they can and stay stay in their homes as long as possible. Ruth, thank, thanks very much. Or do you want to say something else, Ruth? Go ahead. Well, I did, I did want to say, uh, would, would you recommend having a bathtub in there to a regular bathtub? We have room for all this. Um, and a shower? Mm-hmm. I would probably put a regular bathtub in and I would put in a low threshold um, shower, something that um, your husband or you could access with a walker or even a wheelchair that you could use for a long time and get into the shower uh, and use. But if it's just for you, Ruth, I would do the best thing that is that, that suits your lifestyle, what you guys need right now. You know, Thank Ruth, you so much. Ruth, Thank another you. piece of advice would be speak to a realtor who sells condos in your area so you can see what your competition is and you can see what the needs are. And I would ask your realtor if that would be a good idea for you to pursue. Okay. Ruth, thank you very much for the call. And another thing that a finding on this, this survey that this was done, guys, on the value of a, a home renovation and the value in your home. Another one that jumped out at me, Amber, your thoughts is uh, if you go with kind of, let's say you're doing a kitchen, you go with kind of uh, cheaper materials for uh, a countertop, like you go for mica or, or mm-hmm. tiled, a tiled uh, kitchen counter that that's not a great resale feature. I mean, some people might, I don't know, I mean, sometimes you do in the kitchen, you go, oh, my God, the price of, like, a granite countertop is brutal. What are, what are your thoughts on that? we just got a minute left here. Yeah, sure. I can't tell you how many uh, houses I've walked into, Mike, as someone looking to buy a house where they've done a cheap renovation, and it's so frustrating because you think, man, i got to pay top dollar for this person's, you know, terrible choices. If it was me, I would have not renovated it and just put it on the market. Uh, yeah, that's that's really frustrating, and I would say, yeah. you know, put your money with the better quality materials. Let's squeeze in, uh, squeeze in one more call, Murray and Langley. Murray, you got to go quick. Hey guys, um, I'm just going to give a different spin. I'm a real estate appraiser, and I see people doing rentals all the time, and in some cases, they get extreme. In other words, they'll bring a flooring in from the middle of nowhere, and 
pay astronomical for it mm-hmm. and then think that everybody's going to like that and they're going to get their money back out of that. And that's not necessarily true. So those are things to think about when you reno that where you, you, you kind of kind of want to deal to the masses if you're okay. going to sell. Okay, Mary, thanks for the call. Amber, real quick, real I quick. I totally agree. And that's like what Larry said. You want to bring uh, your realtor in or your real t- estate appraiser and say, what do you think I should do? Okay. What are you seeing that we should invest our money in? Guys, the time flew by. Thanks for coming in, though. Appreciate thanks it. Thanks so much, Mike. Thanks, thanks, Mike. You bet, guys. Appreciate it. Larry, Clay, Amber, Welton, they are with Clay Construction. All right, let's talk about some amazing technology deployed recently at the Abbott Ford International Air Show. It's all about detecting drones flying in the airspace around the show. Everybody knows that flying these remote-controlled drones around airports can be a real problem. We've seen lots of different incidents all around the world. Imagine the potential trouble at a huge air show with these drones. Well, now there's some amazing new tech that can identify and track these drones it was deployed at the Abbotsford Air Show. Let's talk about it now with my guest, Philip Reese. He's the CEO of Indro Robotics. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi, Philip. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for coming on. Let's talk briefly, first of all, about the threat or, or problems that are posed by these drones. What is, the, what is the problem or the threat with these things flying around an air show or an airport? Well, as you can imagine, they can be used by um, any level of person. You can go down and buy one of these drones from Best Buy and have it up in the air within about 20 minutes. And whilst there's lots of regulations around what you, where you can and where you cannot fly, um, they can be quite easily ignored, as we saw at Gatwick and Heathrow earlier on this year, uh, last year, and at other, other um, air shows where, if you imagine, you've got lots of very fast, very cool, low-flying aircraft with a big crowd of people underneath them. And then if somebody goes and throws up a drone in the middle, even just the distraction that it might cause to a pilot, let alone the fact of an impact that might happen, you can imagine it could be fairly catastrophic. Um, So this technology really removes that risk. Yeah, and is is there a a temptation by people who are drone enthusiasts to fly these things near an airport? Are Are they looking to get like dramatic video footage of airplanes coming in or something? Like, why would someone... Why would someone choose to fly one of these things around an airplane? Um, I think there was a lot in the early days where, you know, people just didn't know better. And obviously to get a photograph of, a, of an aircraft coming into land is very cool. But I don't think there's very many people in, in out there now who can honestly say that they think that's a good idea. So there is it's mostly mischief or, um, you know, perhaps somebody get with a drone that gets out of out of control on them and they're not really sure how far it can fly. So it's more the mischief factor, and we've seen a lot of that, you know, with the wildfires, for example. People are flying their drones up around the wildfires, which means the helicopters can't get in to put out the fire. So that's that's definitely mischief. Yeah, okay, definitely, for sure, and dangerous as well. Okay, so let's talk about some of this technology that you're you're involved with here at Indro Robotics. Uh, Tell me about this, uh, this unit that was deployed at the Abbotsford Air Show. It's called an aeroscope, right? It is indeed, yep. So uh, Indra Robotics are um, primarily a drone company. We make and manufacture drones and provide them to people. Um, and we saw the, the great uptake of these by all sorts of industry and policing. And the, the natural follow-on from that is how do we stop these drones from getting where they shouldn't be? Um, and that's really when we started to invest in the new technology, buying in stuff from abroad, but also developing our own here. And this, this particular uh, aeroscope that we had deployed at, uh, at Abbotsford Air Show 
it's simple to put up. It mounts on a tripod. You can have it up and running within 20 minutes. It's weatherproof, so you can leave it out there. And it can detect drones out to, well, in this instance, it's actually picking up drones all the way down in the U.S., about 25 kilometers away. It can pick up wow. multiple drones at the wow. same time. And, uh, and the beauty of not just picking up the drone, which obviously it's important that, you know, it tells us where the drone is and how high it is and where speed it's moving. It can also tell us where the pilot is who's flying that drone. So there, if, it, if it's getting in the wrong way, now in Canada, you're not allowed to bring down a drone. In other countries, we have got the technology to bring down the drone. But in Canada, what we do is we can report where the pilot is and then dispatch some security or what have you to go and, and obviously inform him that he's breaking re breaking regulations and he needs to land the drone. Okay, that's really incredible yeah. because these drones, in many cases, they're not very large, right? Like, so I've seen some that are fairly small, fairly compact. Can, can this gizmo even detect those from such a long distance away? That's incredible. It is indeed, yeah. It's um, it's all based on uh, radio frequency, so it's picking up the radio frequency um, control between the drone and the hand controller that the pilot has. And if it can't pick up one, it can still pick up the other. Um, and it can pick those up, yes, from great distances. Many of the drones that are used, you know, are the DJI, sort of the Phantoms. That's the white one that we've probably all seen. And you're right, they're not much bigger than a dinner plate. Um, but still, they can fly for 25 minutes they can fly at about 60 to 70 kilometers an hour so they can cover a, a wide area okay so this uh this unit this technology it can it can identify the location of the drone so i guess they can measure what the altitude the speed where which way it's heading that kind of thing exactly yep it tells you its gps coordinates now and its gps coordinates since it picked it up so you can track a path for where it's going it can identify the speed that the drone's moving at and the exact altitude but in addition to that, with most of the, D well, with all of the DJI drones, it can actually read out the serial number, the make and model, and, and if it's been registered, then from that serial number, we can't tell who the person who's flying it, but the authorities could dig into the registration and then find out um, who it is who's actually flying it. Wow, wow. And also the location of the pilot, like whoever is controlling the drone on the ground by remote control, it can even, it can even track that and identify, pinpoint that? It can. It can pinpoint oh. the pilot who's controlling the drone down to two meters accuracy. So, Whoa. you know, you can, you can give the, the authorities an exact location where that person is. Okay, so they tried out this technology recently at the Abbotsford Air Show, and uh, did it pick up a lot of drones in the area? And we weren't sure what we were going to find, because there was a big um, press push by both Transport Canada and Abbotsford um, Air Show to, you know, leave your drone at home was the big right. message, and trying to put out that it, uh, it really is important that people don't fly them here. However, through the course of the event, we picked up over eight um, drones in and around the area, so it's, you know, the message was out there and I, I, we didn't ha actually have any on the airfield, which was great, but we did pick up seven or eight, which could have easily um, reached the airfield had they been pointed in that direction. Okay. You mentioned that other countries can bring down a drone, but we don't do that in Canada. How do you bring down a drone? Like shoot it down? Hopefully not. So ballistic right. measures are um, possible, so you could shoot it down. That, that's more of a military-type situation. Yeah. So we uh, manufacture and deploy equipment um, outside of North America that brings down a drone in a different method. So it's, uh, it's using to detect the same kind of RF um, detection that we used at Abbotsford Air Show. It can also be equipped with a radar as well. 
Um, but by bringing it down, what they do is they actually block that RF link. So they jam the signal between the pilot and the um, hand con and, and the drone, hence cutting that off, which usually in most instances will get the, re the drone to return to home. However, if, if it's more sophisticated than that and, um, and it's been programmed not to return to home, we can then block the, dro the drone's GPS. So it jams its GPS. Now the drone doesn't know where it is or where it's going, so it can't continue on with its mission to wreak whatever mayhem it may have. And then the final method we have um, is we actually spoof a signal. So we're sending up a false command. And basically, it's a little bit like hacking on, you know, it's it, we're, we're trying to interrupt the, the processing that's going on and give it a false signal, which tells it to land. So whilst they are countermeasures to bring a drone down, they're fairly soft. They're not hard countermeasures. We're not shooting a net or sending a right. falcon or, you know, starting to shoot bullets at it. Right. Well, it's super interesting stuff you guys are doing out there. And we've been hearing about you guys today in our newscasts because you had this drone delivery of medication. Tell us what happened. We actually delivered uh, prescription medication from uh, Duncan on Vancouver Island all the way to Salt Spring. This is a first for uh, North America and definitely in Canada where the prescription drugs were actually dispatched by a pharmacist direct to a patient's home. So um, in this instance, we flew uh, a little over 11 kilometers. It was mostly over the ocean and um, the delivery took a little over 10 minutes. So you can imagine we're saving quite a lot of time here and with prescription medicine, it's uh, time is always of the essence. So we were able to do this uh, delivery again, as I say, of prescription drugs and uh, the drone flew beyond visual line of sight on a fully autonomous route. There was a pilot in the loop, of course, just making sure everything was safe, but the drone um, was dispatched from the Duncan pharmacist and came all the way over the, uh, the, the channel there and then landed in the yard of the, um, of the patient's home where he was able to remove the, uh, the medication from the saddlebags that we put on the side of the drone and close it up and then when he stepped back the drone recognized it was clear to take off it sends its little warning out and then takes off to the skies and returns back to, uh, to the nearest London drugs ready for its next mission Okay, that's amazing. So what, what could this kind of technology be used for in the future? Um, I think this uh, was a really great demonstration of the ability for a drone to be able to carry out a vital and important mission. So here, if you imagine, in this instance, the drone was delivering prescription medications from a pharmacist direct to a patient's home. But in the future, there's no uh, limitations to that. Because the drone is flown completely over cellular rather than radio, it can basically go anywhere where a cellular connection can be found. So if you're off hiking in the mountains, let's say, and maybe stung by a bee and desperately need that EpiPen, you could go to your app, which admittedly hasn't been developed yet, but I think this is the first step towards it. Maybe it's a London Drugs app, you open it up, you put in your situation, and then a pharmacist at whichever is the nearest London Drugs, or maybe it's the nearest fire department even, loads in the, uh, the EpiPen and dispatches it directly to the GPS coordinates on your phone. So you can uh, be up there in, in your mountains, the drone will fly at uh, 50 to 80 kilometers an hour direct to you and land and dispatch the medications so you can uh, return back home safely. Interesting stuff, Philip. Thanks for coming on to talk about it today. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. 
complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Pleasure to be on the show. Thank you very much. All right, that was Philip Reese. He's the CEO of Indro Robotics. They're a local company. They got offices in Vancouver, Victoria, and Salt Spring Island. Would you like to see the number of calories listed on your beer, wine, or mixed drinks? Adam Shirk is a researcher with the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research, and he thinks it's time for alcoholic beverages to be required to display calorie content and nutritional value on their labels. CKNW contributor Claire Allen caught up with Shirk to learn more about why he thinks this change would help Canadians make better choices. Tell me about your recent study on Canadians' alcohol consumption and how many drinks Canadians are actually consuming daily. I'm happy to. So what we wanted to look into was how many calories Canadian drinkers are getting from alcoholic beverages. The reason we were interested in this is because um, caloric and nutritional information isn't mandated to be on, on alcohol packaging. So we thought it would be interesting to kind of understand just the quantity of calories that Canadians are getting, um, Canadian drinkers are getting from alcohol. And we found it was quite a lot. So um, among Canadian drinkers, we get more than one-tenth, in fact, 11% of all of our recommended daily calories from alcoholic beverages, which is particularly surprising given that calories aren't even on the label of the thing that we're drinking. Yeah, so why are calories not listed on alcoholic beverages or even nutritional information? Why do we not have any of that information on the labeling of alcoholic beverages? I would say it's very hard to justify. So alcohol, um, the labeling aspect of alcohol packaging comes from Canada's Federal Food and Beverages Act. Alcohol uniquely was somehow exempted from labeling because it was um, warranted to have no nutritional value. Alcohol doesn't, it's not pertained under its own act, such as the Cannabis Act or Tobacco Act, which cover other harmful substances. But it's really interesting because there are lots of things that I would say are certainly have no nutritional value that do have nutritional labels on them. An interesting one that I just looked up before we talked is bottled water. <laughs> so like bottled water has the number of calories on it, which is obviously zero, and nutritional information, which just has zeros everywhere. But yet, alcohol containers don't have to have calories or nutritional labeling on it. That's a great point, Adam. So in your report, how much did you find that the average Canadian drinker drinks per day? And how many calories does that translate to? And what are the stats for binge drinking? The average Canadian drinker is getting on average 250 calories per day from alcoholic drinks. This is about the same number of calories that's in like a grab bag of chips that you'd get from the corner store. But that's just an average. It doesn't say anything about uh, specific occasion drinking, like, for example, binge drinking, when we drink, of course, more than average. So if, we, if, if a man or a woman were to binge drink, which is uh, five drinks or more for a man or four drinks or more for a woman, then we would get something more like 25% of all of our uh, daily recommended calories from alcohol, or this is about 
600 calories for a man and 480 calories for a woman. Wow, that's uh, a lot. I've always heard the people say like, oh, I don't drink beer, I only drink clear alcohol because it's less Mm. calories. Do you think people are actually aware of the calories they're consuming when they have one drink or like you say, binge drink? Do you think they're actually acutely aware of the caloric intake? I'm certain that they don't because I didn't even know before we did the study, which is one of the reasons we wanted to look into it. And another thing that is interesting, beer, among the three main categories of alcohol, beer, wine, and spirits, beer has the most calories, but even spirits like hard liquor has a lot of calories in it. Like alcohol itself, the pure alcohol or ethanol is just calorie dense. So even just a shot of spirits, 1.5 ounces of spirits, that has more than 90 calories in it, almost 100. Oh, wow. So it's pretty surprising. That's before mixing anything into it. So it's just kind of like if you're drinking ethanol, if you're drinking alcohol, you're getting a lot of calories from the ethanol itself. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I guess you're telling me that, that uh, people have been telling me that vodka has no calories. They are lying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Definitely lying. Um, so, um, I know that you are, uh, from what I read in your report is that you're asking for a change to be made when it comes to labeling of alcohol. Can you tell me what you would like to see? I think it would be fair and reasonable to request that alcohol, um, alcohol packaging have to operate under all the same regulations as virtually all other food and beverages in Canada, which is just to have calorie and nutritional labeling as well as ingredient labeling on the package which is just kind of baked into all other uh, food and beverage manufacturers' processes. Somehow alcohol has been exempted from this historically for decades. And as a drinker myself, I guess, like I would say, it just makes no sense. Alcohol should be included in other beverage categories like water, like soda that has uh, that type of labeling. Um, So we think that should happen. Do you think that people would make different choices about what they drink if they saw the calorie list or the nutritional quote unquote, the content of, of, the, of their drink of choice? Do you think it would actually lead for them to them making different decisions? I think it would, it would subtly influence people's behavior. <laughs> Some people... Some people have said, or somebody on the radio that I was talking to said, I asked around and people just don't want to know what's in their alcohol. <laughs> but I don't really want to believe it because I don't really buy it because I don't think we really want to know what's in our soda pop either. Well, we, like, we do want to know, but we might, we're going to drink some anyway. So I would say that it would, it would subtly influence people's behaviors. But more the point is that we're all adults and our own decision makers. We need to be able to have the information in front of us to make the best decisions for our health, both our physical and psychological health. And having um, calorie and nutritional labeling on alcohol packaging, just like all the other food and beverages that we eat and drink, uh, would help us make better choices between all these different um, options that we have. I think so too, Adam. Well, thanks so much for chatting with me. I I really appreciate it. No problem.
All right, that's substance use researcher Adam Shirk talking to our own Claire Allen there. He is calling for labeling on alcoholic packages to show their calorie content and their nutritional value, just like you heard him say that with other food products you buy at your store. What do you think about that? Should there be labels on your beer, your wine, other alcoholic drinks, showing their calorie content and their nutritional value? Let's check in with our uh, hot question of the day on that on Twitter, which is, do you want to see the number of calories listed on your alcoholic drinks? Mm, Okay, there's split opinion here on this one. 64% of you today say Yes, knowledge is power. I would like to see this information displayed on booze bottles and alcohol packaging. 36% today say, no, it's fine the way it is. Ignorance is bliss. At CKNW on Twitter is where you'll find that hot question today. You can keep voting on that one. At CKNW on Twitter. Let's talk about the wreck of the Titanic. Now, of course... Everyone knows the story of the famous ship that was billed as unsinkable. Of course, it hit an iceberg and famously sank on April 15th, 1912. So over 107 years ago now, more than 1,500 people died in that disaster. 705 people were rescued. So many legends about this uh, disaster and, of course, the famous movie by filmmaker James Cameron just increased the public fascination uh, with the Titanic. The wreck of the Titanic, of course, still rests on the ocean floor about 600 kilometers off the southeast coast of Newfoundland. Now check this out. There are some new photos now of the wreck on the ocean floor. And it shows uh, the the wreck is deteriorating. So it is rusting. It is being eaten by a type of bacteria. Some experts think it could entirely disappear. Let me introduce you now to a great guest, one of the few people in the world who has actually been down there to the Titanic shipwreck uh, in a submarine. He's a Titanic historian and researcher, Larry Daly. We reached him in Newfoundland. Hi, Larry. Hey, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. Let's let's go back first to 2003. That that's the year that you went down to the wreck, right? Yeah, correct. I uh, was fortunate to dive the wreck June 25th, 2003, in a Russian Mir submersible. And uh, that summer, I was uh, working with a friend and colleague James James Cameron on a couple of projects. Yeah, James Cameron, of course, the famous director of the Titanic film. He he also made a documentary about the about the shipwreck, right? Uh, yes. Uh, well, the feature film uh, that was re- you know released in nineteen ninety seven, and then he did a docudrama uh, called Ghosts of the Abyss. Uh, that right. was we we did that in two thousand and one, right? You got to tell me, Larry, what is it like for the vast majority of people who would never experience something like that, actually being there and seeing that wreckage of this famous ship, the Titanic, kind of emerging out of the darkness there? What, what is that like? Can you, can you describe that in words? Yeah, sure. Like to kind of lead you up to that, that moment, uh, we, we got in the submersible on the, uh, the deck of the academic Keldish, the research vessel also used in the movie. 
with the time we got in that, you know, and launched from the side, pulled away from the ship and got our, our approval to drop two and a half miles down. Um, when we did get to the bottom using sonar uh, transponders that were deployed the day before, the pilot Anatoly had lined us up directly with the bow. And when he flicked on the outside lights, we were literally sitting on the seafloor, probably 10 feet from the bow sticking out of the, you know, the, 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 the mud on the seafloor. And then we gradually flew up over the bow, uh, the bow rail, which was famous in the movie, you know, where DiCaprio was out, you know, uh, with his arms out, you know, the famous, I'm the king of the world. King so, of the world, right, right. Yeah, yeah. so, you know, so that, uh, you know, you, you kind of envision that part of the movie, but then reality kicks in and you're flying up over the wheelhouse and you see memorial plaques that were placed there uh, on previous expeditions, uh, memoriams to the people lost, and it, you know, it really it's home that you're at a grave site. So right away, yeah. you know, those feelings uh, come out, you know, you're overcome with emotion and then you pay your respects before you actually start the uh, survey and, and adventure of, uh, you know, looking at the wreck. Okay, Larry, I know you took some, you took some famous photos on that, on that mission and, and video. And I, uh, earlier today, I, I tweeted out a photograph that you took in 2003. And I, if people want to check that out, give me a follow on Twitter at Mike Smith news on Twitter S-M-Y-T-H, at Mike Smith News on Twitter, and you'll see uh, Larry's photograph there. And that photograph, Larry, shows the captain's quarters of the ship and also, very famously, the captain's bathtub, right? Correct, yeah. So uh, when we uh, hovered next to it in the submersible and lit that area up, the exterior wall was, you know, disintegrated, opening up the captain's uh, quarters, you know, that we could see in a light up and you would see the, the porcelain tub, the actual uh, pipes coming down to the faucets. So you have a combination of different metals uh, and the porcelain uh, and then the chandelier, you know, what the remnants of that hanging over the tub and the wires. Um, so it gives you kind of a, you know, a, a vision of what the, the life of a captain was on the Titanic. You know, Captain Smith's accommodations were obviously first class as well. But, um, you know, as you know now, the latest images that we have, the, uh, the 4K uh, images that came out in the last uh, few days show that the, uh, you know, that whole area, it, it's gone. It's after collapsing down into, you know, the, the bowels of the ship. So that was a, a favorite point uh, to uh, see, you know, among the, the dives for tourist dives or our science dives. So that, that is unfortunately gone completely. Let's talk about that, Larry, because we, we've now seen these new images of very high, very clear and high definition images of the wreck, and it looks very different. So as you mentioned, the wreck is deteriorating, and that famous, that famous vantage point of the captain's quarters in the bathtub, that's just, it's just, what is it, just gone? Has it disappeared? It's just disintegrated? What happened to it? Yeah, so from what I understand, uh, you know, the, the whole um, uh, document, you know, the documentary of all of this that was taken recently will be released, you know, in the coming weeks. Uh, but one of my colleagues uh, that was uh, in the submersible on that dive, uh, Park Stevenson, um, you know, he's uh, he's explained, too, from what he's seen and, and what uh, what's at liberty, you know, to be told right now. Right. Uh, that that is completely gone, which is, you know, very saddening because that tells you that, the timeline of the wreck, you know, uh, staying together is very short now. So, uh, you know, uh, I was fortunate to see the wreck in better shape in 2003 and document that with, uh, at the time, high-def, 
you know, video and photography. Uh, and now the latest images were crystal clear. It's just showing how, how sick the wreck is re- really is, and it's very sick. Uh, speaking to Larry Daly, he's a Titanic historian and researcher. We're talking about his famous dive to the uh, Titanic back in 2003 and some of the new images uh, that are coming out of the deteriorating uh, quality of of the shipwreck. There's some speculation, Larry, that the the entire Titanic wreckage could completely disintegrate and dis- disappear the entire thing forever. Is that possible? Yeah, correct, because the, uh, the, the, the situation there now is the bacteria that's consuming the wreck, which is uh, rustical. And uh, I was fortunate to dive in 03 with uh, part of our team where the top specialists uh, in the world, they're Canadians, uh, Dr. Lori Johnson from Saskatchewan, and uh, I worked with her colleague, Dr. Roy Collymore, you know, on previous expeditions. And they're the, uh, they're the doctors of Titanic. They study Titanic for years and the rusticles and the impact that uh, that microorganism is having, um, you know, eating the, uh, eating the wreck. So it's consuming the, the various metals. Um, and what's happening when the rusticles, you know, uh, chew away, you know, on the uh, on the wreck on a, on a rapid daily basis, it produces almost like a slag or a lava that replaces what was there in metal. So that uh, you know that waste is actually uh, you know compounding down on the wreck and causing you know weight on what's already been consumed or damaged, and, and eventually the combination of the bacteria that are there, the deep water current, um, you know, the water temperature and various other things are going to eventually cause the wreck to uh, basically implode on itself. And, you know, it's a sad thing to see because, you know, uh, you know, there is a timeline that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thinking uh, it'll be, you know, completely collapsed by. And uh, so far the numbers are adding up from say my dive and the, the last, um, you know, unmanned dives in 2010. So it's the timeline seems to be pretty accurate. What would be the timeline then before the the wreck uh, collapses completely? How much time How much time does the wreck have left? Well, in two thousand and three, for what we surveyed and uh, and did our science during that expedition, um, I figured it would be anywhere from you know twenty twenty five years, maybe thirty years. So I'm thinking it's probably in the range of about twenty five years from that point. So we're moving along quite rapidly now, and seeing the deterioration is picked up considerably. There's uh, blowouts in areas of the wreck, and, you know, as you see, the, the captain's cabin has collapsed. So, you know, that deck itself is uh, compromised, you know, as, as far as uh, the weight on it and stuff like that. So I'd say in the next five years, you're probably going to see wow. a lot of areas just blow out completely. Wow, okay. What does the Titanic mean to you? What What is it about this, the, the story and the wreck that, that is so fascinating to you and, and, and to so many other people? Well, growing up in Newfoundland, you know, always knowing the story about Titanic and, uh, you know, the biggest thing that uh, touches my heart is the immigrants that were on there coming, you know, from Europe to go to, you know, America and Canada to start a new life. Um, my my ancestry is Irish, so we have uh, dailies uh, that from the same counties that my, my clan came from, uh, spelled differently at the time, D-A-L-Y, you know, the immigrants would have been, mine is D-A-L-E-Y, but just knowing the the hardships that these people endured, you know, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and then, you know, have an opportunity to start out again, and then, you know, uh, actually be lost on the Titanic just due to pure 
uh, ignorance and negligence. So, you know, it was it was the the biggest best ship at the time, but you know, it it, it didn't take heed to the ice warnings. As you know, we have icebergs going by the coast every spring. So, yeah. you know, that's a reminder of the tragedy and. You know, if they had taken their time, they would have probably avoided the collision. And if you had enough lifeboats, obviously more lives would be sold or saved. Sorry, Larry, it's fascinating to talk to you. And uh, thank you for taking the time today to talk about the Titanic. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Okay, thank you. As Larry Daly reached him in St. John's, Newfoundland. He is a Titanic historian and researcher. Let's talk about the importance of tugboats on our coast now. So important for marine safety in British Columbia. And tugboats are going to become increasingly more important, especially after the approval of the Trans Mountain Pipeline and more oil tankers potentially in our waters. Tugboats going to play a, a critical role there in making sure that we have a safe environment here on our coast. Let me tell you now about a really fascinating high-tech training facility and program in BC now. My guest is Bart Reynolds. He's the president of C-SPAN Marine. Thanks a lot for coming on. Mike, thanks for having me today. Hey, I appreciate it. How many tugboats do you guys operate over there at C-SPAN? Today we operate uh, a little over 30 tugboats, um, but some exciting news that we just announced a couple days ago is that we have uh, won the contract for the LNG Canada Terminal Support in Kitimat, and uh, we'll be building six purpose-built brand-new tugs uh, to support that project here over the next couple of years. Okay. So we're adding to our fleet. Yes, I saw that for sure. And I guess those tugboats, they will what? They will uh, escort those uh, LNG tankers? Is that how it's going to work? That's correct. Uh, not only is this going to be the largest private investment in Canada's history, the largest uh, LNG terminal in the world, it will also be the longest escort in the world, 159 nautical miles from uh, Triple Island uh, off uh, really closer to Prince Rupert um, all the way up to uh, Kitimat. And it'll, the escorts will be uh, both uh, inbound and outbound uh, tankers. Okay, that's really interesting stuff. What do those tugboats do? Like, what role do they play when you when they're escorting these big tankers? I mean, are they tethered to the tankers just in case the tanker what maybe loses power or something? That's right. So por portions of the escort will be alongside, and you won't be tethered. And then there are other portions that are a little bit uh, more narrow channels in areas where you are tethered. Um, in either circumstance, the, the, the tug is there uh, strictly for safety reasons to be able to take over um, the direction, uh, either slowing, stopping, or dire directing the ship uh, if necessary. Right. And how about for the Trans Mountain Pipeline project and when we have, if, if, the, pro if the thing gets built, which the government says it's going to get built, if we have more tankers in our waters, will it be your tugboats uh, playing a role there too? Uh, we certainly hope that it's going to be our tugboats that are supporting that project. But today you have about 3,100 vessels a year that are calling into Vancouver Harbor. Of those, less than 50 of those are Aframax oil tankers. Uh, so it's a very small part of the traffic today. If the pipeline uh, goes through, 
that will increase to about 400 a year, still a relatively right. small portion of the uh, overall traffic. You know, our job, uh, we're, we're really agnostic of what type of ship is coming into Vancouver Harbor. Our job is to make sure that regardless of whatever the ship size and whatever it's carrying, that we're able to safely trans, uh, do the ship docking and shaf- safely ex- escort those vessels as, as and if required. Okay, speaking to Bart Reynolds, he's the president of C-SPAN Marine. Those tugboats, of course, the tugboats are always known for their power. And if you got like a big oil tanker or a big heavy LNG tanker, these, these tugboats are obviously more powerful enough to tow them, right? They can move, move their direction if they have to? Yeah, really when you're talking about moving ships, we are, we're not going to slow the tanker down quick, quickly enough. It's primarily about uh, changing the direction, right? Um, they're, yeah. they're coming in. They're coming in at four or five knots, enough speed to where the ship can continue to make, uh, you know, if you go too slow, you can't control the direction. So you have to have a certain amount of speed to be able to control the direction. Um, and then if something were to go wrong, uh, our tugs are there to ensure that we can change the direction and keep those those ships from from running into anything. Right. I'm happy to say that we have a very good track record in Vancouver Harbor. We've never had a, uh, an incident that resulted in the loss of any product or cargo into the harbor. But we are taking steps now with the addition of the simulator to ensure we have a fantastic track record of going back um, more than 50 years. But we want to make sure that we have a perfect record going forward. And that was okay. uh, the reason for the investment in, in the simulator. Okay, that leads me to my next question about this simulator that you guys have brought in and, and the training program that you've got. And, and I think there's, there's just huge public interest in this because everybody, safety has got to be paramount and the protection of our coast has got to be absolutely top of the, top of the list here and, and safety for human lives as well. So obviously these tugboats play an absolutely crucial role in that. So tell me about the, uh, the, the training facility that you brought in there. So we have uh, embarked on a tr- on a training program that's the only class certified uh, tugmaster training program in the world. It actually was developed in the UK. Um, it, it there there is no other training program like it in Canada or even North America. Um, we were started with this process to send our people to the UK to do the simulator training there. Uh, and then we, we decided that the training was so good that we wanted to put not just some of our captains that are involved in, in ship docking, but we wanted to put all of our masters and mates, regardless of where they operate for us on the coast, through this, this, this training program. Uh, it, it, the economics quickly dis, uh, became clear that it made sense for us to buy our own simulator. So we spent a million and a half dollars to install the 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 actually today it's the best transit simulator on the planet. It's the only one of its kind in North America. We have it here in North Vancouver exclusively for for our access and in our training. And then we've made another commitment of another five million dollars uh, of to pay for the wages for our people to go through that 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 training program. The training program itself is 10 days of simulation in the for each person in the simulator and then you do 6 days of live training doing the exact same exercises but now you do it on a real vessel in the harbor so that's 16 days of uh, full-time paid training at the end of that 
you take a competency exam. And so that mm. exam is you have to do a time trial of a circuit where you're going to test all 25 skills that you've learned and mastered over the last 16 days of training. And you have to pass that circuit four times without a mistake in a certain time frame. The time frame is based around a 30% um, uh, within the time frame of the, of the instructor of the course. Okay. And if you pass that, then you, you pass the course. If you don't, then you have to go back and, and you, we'll work on whatever portion of that uh, skills that you weren't able to master until you're able okay. to do that. Okay. When you, when you say a simulator, I, I'm picturing in my mind one of those, uh, like an airplane pilot simulator, like a pilot sitting in, at the controls of an airplane, and there's like, a, there's like a computer screen in front of you. There's like a virtual reality thing. It almost feels like they're flying the plane. Is it the same thing for this simulator for like, for like running a tugboat? It, it, it's it, it's similar, but on a much larger scale. So this is a room that's about a 15-foot uh, room um, uh, circ in, in circumference, and uh, you've got 360-degree um, floor-to-ceiling uh, video screen. So you actually are feel completely submerged, in, and you feel like you're on a real tugboat. The first thing that people say when they go in there and we start to run a, an exercise is most people say that the floor is moving. The floor no. is not moving. That's your ears and your, and your head playing tricks on you, but you feel like you're moving because everything that you can see in your equilibrium is completely thrown off. You think you're moving. Okay, that's really interesting stuff. Are you guys hiring over there at C-SPAN? We are. We, we, yeah. we are. We're looking for the, the best and brightest. I can tell you, we already have some of the best mariners in the world working for us. This group that, uh, that we did the training program with, before we started there, they had trained about 1,800 people around the world. And uh, we had put about 35 of our people through the course so far. And, and the top two sco scores that they've had in the world out of more than 1,800 people, came from uh, two of the C-SPAN Mariners. Wow. So we've got some great people working for us already, and we're always looking for more. What, what kind of qualifications do you have to have to be a tugboat operator to come over there and work at C-SPAN? Well, a lot of people start, up, start in the industry as a deckhand and work their way up. Um, yeah. So there's a number of different ways that you can enter into the industry. Let's talk about how BC's killer whales are doing right now. The southern resident orcas, they're among the most studied marine mammals on the planet. That particular population, very iconic and beloved in BC, has been struggling recently. Meanwhile, we seem to have larger numbers of transient killer whales showing up in our waters my guest is josh mckinnis he's a marine mammal researcher at the university of victoria josh thanks for coming on hey thanks for having me appreciate it josh let's start with the southern resident whales i mean i don't know when i look at the headlines i sometimes you feel hopeful and sometimes feel you know discouraged because we've heard about uh three southern resident whales disappeared over the summer i understand and presumed dead but then i heard that there is some whale calf some baby whales showing up too so what's the latest there with the southern resident whales well so a couple of interesting things that happened um, the last little while um, especially taking place in the summer um, which was really neat um, we were conducting field research in monterey california uh, that's where we're actually located at an organization called marine life studies 
And we were on a field survey actually trying to study the transient population, which is um, another kind of killer whale. And we saw these killer whale, a large group of orcas coming up uh, from the south near Carmel. So we kind of stopped and, you know, we thought we had, you know, transients and we were waiting for them because they had disappeared for a few days. And all of a sudden, you know, we had L-Pod from the southern residents. And wow. we were shocked this far south. And we did our best to collect as much information, like uh, photo identification of the dorsal fins, which is it kind of shows in the saddle patch, which shows you each individual being a unique, kind of like a fingerprint. Right. Um, each fin in saddle patch kind of has a distinguishing scars or cuts or notches. Um that lasts with the animal his entire life. So we were lucky to see one of the newest calves, um, L124, which was born in 2018, um, doing quite well with its mother. And um, the critical point in the killer whale's life is the six months um, of being born. So it, uh, the calf is definitely past that six-month mark, and um, survival or mortality rate starts to go up from there. So that was really exciting. And then uh, uh, later this year, um, whale watchers off Tofino um, actually uh, discovered a new calf um, in J-Pod, J-56, which is really exciting because J-Pod hasn't had really any new calves for some time. So for us, that's um, that's a great sign. And a lot of what we're really looking at, and we're kind of in a critical area, um, is that the, tr- the residents have really switched their habitat um, from being in the Salish Sea, uh, George Strait, uh, Juan Strait, and Puget Sound, to um, the outer coast of um, British Columbia, Washington, Oregon, and California. So being in Monterey, we're able to even kind of able to look at that as being a new area that's important to kind of document and look at these animals. Okay, that's very interesting stuff, Josh. You mentioned that you guys were surprised to to see those southern resident whales that that far south. What what were they doing down there? Well, that's that's interesting. Um, a good question. Uh, over the last um, few years, especially the work that uh, NOAA in Seattle Northwest Fishery Science has really conducted. Um, uh, they've kind of discovered that, you know, through a lot of the work through satellite tagging and just looking at these animals, just spending a lot of time off the Columbia River, um, there's in Oregon, um, they're, you know, off California, we've seen more and more of at least two of the pods, um, J and K, or sorry, L and K pod um, being off those areas. And it was funny at the time we were, we were, you know, the salmon fishery was just opening up and in Monterey, it's kind of a, a quick uh, scene. It's usually, you know, it could last a week, it could last two weeks and suddenly, um, uh, fishing game in the in the states and in California will just basically shut it down, so fishermen get their one shot at it. And we were talking to a lot of the fishermen; they were saying they were catching numerous chinooks, and right. that is the main prey of the residents. So at right. just that moment, the residents had shown up, which was you know maybe they were finding food. We didn't. We saw one or two what we believe to be predation events where they may have gotten a fish, but they were moving fairly quickly across the canyon, the Monterey Canyon, and heading north. So you okay. know you know towards. Um, back in their home waters but um yeah other than that though we, they might be down there feeding okay josh you just got one minute here what about the um what about the transient whales we're seeing a lot of these i don't know it seemed to be like we're seeing more of them here in bc we've saw them in false creek show up we've seen them in victoria harbor where are these whales coming from so transients have been around for a long time they're just another type of killer whale um they're an ecotype that's different so genetically distinct acoustically their numbers are growing significantly um they're up to around 350 for what we call an inner coast population and then there's an outer coast population towards california washington oregon that um is about 150 that we've identified and they preferably eat seals so the harbor seal population is doing really well right now um it's one of the largest numbers that we've seen so far we really don't know what the numbers were before they were called by um, the Canadian government in the 1960s. But that's probably one of the big reasons why we're seeing so many of the transients in the area, is just the food food resources are there. 
Josh, it's interesting work you're involved in there. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me, and uh, we'll chat again. You bet. That's Josh McKinnis. He's a marine mammal researcher at UVic with the latest on BC's killer whales.